host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is this podcast associated with any medical service or health provider. All information, content, and material is for information and entertainment purposes and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. Should you suspect that you are exhibiting symptoms of any illness or infection referenced in this podcast, please contact a medical professional immediately. On January 22, 2020, as the news of the viral outbreak in China was beginning to gain traction, the UK-based publication, The Daily Star, ran a headline stating that the deadly coronavirus could already be in the UK, says medical expert. The subheadline was more alarming. Professor Neil Ferguson likened the potential impact of the disease to the devastating Spanish flu outbreak of 1919 that killed 50 million people worldwide. At the time of the article, the virus had been attributed to 17 deaths, with a total of 1,700 people having contracted the infection. That is, with easy math, a 1% mortality rate of those infected. Yet the article goes on to state that the coronavirus death rate was 1 in 50, which is a 2% mortality rate if anyone is tracking, an equivalent to the devastating 1918 Spanish influenza outbreak, which, in the most extreme of estimates, quote, killed more people than the First World War, end quote. Today, part one of our discussion on pandemic fears, where we will dig into the unfolding coronavirus outbreak and explore the basis of our fascination with pandemic threats. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Welcome back, Theoryologists. It is 2020 and a new year is upon us. This episode is just barely making it into January, and I apologize for the delay. The topic of pandemic threat in general became a theme for this episode as news started to trickle out regarding this current outbreak in China. It became clear that a prolonged research period would be appropriate in order to present an accurate picture of events. It's not often, after all, that we explore active current events on this podcast. Though much of the information presented is background, there will be areas such as reported rates of impact that will be obsolete the moment this episode is downloaded. I just wanted to let you know that and put that disclaimer out. Let's start with a question regarding this media hype pandemic. What is it really? And is it actually that bad? Okay. So, the world is on fire, being burnt to a cinder by the flames of this dreaded coronavirus. This angel of death itself, shrunk to the size of an adorably large version of an RNA virus, is wreaking havoc on all of mankind. This Sasquatch of the virus world, which normally preys on cows, pigs, chickens, and apparently snakes and bats, and I would assume any other hapless, happy-go-lucky barnyard or forest animal, has gone cryptid, 
aware creature upon us again that has jumped the infection to humans by giving us a cold. Oh, the humanity. There is no cure. There is no vaccine. It is intent on taking us out one by one through a serious case of the sniffles until we are all gone. And there is nothing, nothing we can do about it. Um, except this part right here. It, it's, it's here in my notes. It's from WebMD on, on 2017 uh, when this was posted. Um, what does it say here? Oh, yeah. A coronavirus is a type of common virus that can infect your nose, sinuses, or upper throat. There is no vaccine for coronavirus. <laughs> see, see, that's we said that. Now, to help prevent the coronavirus infection, do the same things you do to avoid the common cold. Hmm. Well, let's let's look at this extensive list here. One, wash your hands thoroughly with soap and warm water. Two, keep your hands and fingers away from your eyes, nose, and mouth. Three, avoid close contact with people who are infected. And um, oh, okay, okay. The list the list stops there. So, I guess it's not that bad. Uh, wash your hands. Avoid crowded and unsanitary places during the cold and flu season. And don't go sticking your fingers in your face all willy-nilly without washing your hands. Uh, did I mention that part about washing your hands? <laughs> Look, basically, do what your mother always told you to do, and you'll be okay. And, speaking of doing what your mother tells you to do, my mother told me to always say thank you. So... Before we continue on this topic, that's what I'm going to do. I wanted to take a moment and jump in here to say thank you to all the listeners, both seasoned theologists and new listeners alike. A lot of new ears have come on board just in the recent months, which I get to see in the download statistics for the show, while I, of course, can't know who you are or any other personal detail. And I assure you, I wouldn't do this podcast if it meant risking your privacy any more than the internet already compromises it. Still, I do take it very personally and to heart that you took the time to choose conspiracy theoryology and give it a listen. The interest is also showing an increased activity on social media, which is where you can really jump in and interact. And don't forget that you can support the show on Patreon. For those of you that are new to the podcast, welcome in. And for those that have been listening for a while now, well, there is still plenty more in store. And to all of you, thank you. Okay, let's get back to it. So what is really going on? Quips and sarcasm aside, let's talk in summary of the coronavirus. First, what is it? Well, the term coronavirus is actually the term for a group of viruses that cause disease in mammals, which can include us while typically causing mild respiratory infections, apparently they can prove more dangerous. The term corona was given to this group because of the appearance of a halo-like group of little spiky thingies called peplomers, pep peplomers, peplom, pep something or others, around the outside of this round-shaped virus. It looks like the ring of a solar corona during an eclipse. The viruses are also very large. For a virus, I suppose. Second, these viruses work a number of ways in humans. A coronavirus 
itself is believed to be the primary cause of the common cold in most kids and adults. Now, more disconcerting, coronaviruses can cause pneumonia and bronchitis, generally as secondary uh, uh, bacterial infections. And yes, upper and lower respiratory tract infections can be lethal in high-risk groups, such as the elderly, the very young, and those with already compromised immune systems, such as those that are already sick or with immunodeficiencies. Keep all of that in mind. And finally, these coronaviruses are the types of viruses that were associated with the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s and MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, in 2012. SARS infected around 8,000 people with approximately 800 deaths. In the eight years since MERS first appeared, it has surfaced on multiple occasions and has a total death toll of 851 people. In both cases, most of the deaths included a seldom-mentioned factor, comorbidities. Now, that simply means that most of the people that died from these infections were also dealing with other life-threatening illnesses and conditions, such as diabetes and heart disease. And that's an important point to remember and something that is often overlooked and left out of the headlines. Now, that's, that's the coronavirus group in general. As for the specific cases originating from Wuhan, China, it is known currently as the 2019 novel coronavirus. Novel viruses are simply new viruses. It was identified in December 2019 from a sample found in a patient with pneumonia. Its epicenter appears to be a seafood wholesale market in Wuhan which is a city that boasts a population of 11 million people. Of course, as this episode is being recorded, we are right in the middle of this viral event, pun intended, and later testing and research why they continue to confirm or revise these initial suspicions. Right now, it seems rather likely that the transmission from either bats or snakes that were sold at the market are the likely explanation. This new coronavirus, which is likely to become known as the Wuhan coronavirus, is related to SARS and a bat coronavirus from gen uh, genomic testing. Now, here's where we talk infection and death toll numbers. Remember, this is all happening currently, and I've been updating my notes as I prepared for this recording, but by the time you hear it, I'm assuming it'll all be different. I can't even find consistent numbers between reports within the same day. So with that caveat, as of this last week in January, there have been 8,000 confirmed cases, almost all in China itself. And those outside of China are individuals that were from or traveled through Wuhan recently. Um, there have been only recently definitive confirmations of human-to-human -human transmission where we have essentially secondary cases of trans transference from people that arrived overseas or people that were not in China. It could be that only those specifically exposed at the seafood market or in Wuhan contracted the most lethal form of the infection. It does seem to be mutating rather quickly and, and adapting. Recent reports in China... Germany and the U.S. have confirmed that human-to-human -human transmission has occurred. Of the confirmed cases, 
there have been 170 deaths attributed, and from everything I can find, a direct result of a secondary infection of pneumonia or some other sort of respiratory uh, secondary infection. Most deaths appear to be associated with issues of comorbidity amongst the older members of the population. As with other coronaviruses, these present with mild pneumonia-like symptoms, and recommendations to avoid infections are the same as those guidelines to avoid the flu or the cold. In truth, the estimated uh, numbers for infection appear very low to some researchers, who indicate that there could be hundreds or thousands more infected, whether they know it or not. In all honesty, if this has mutated to allow for human-to-human -human transmission, then that makes sense. It also makes sense that most healthy people uh, won't even know that they have contracted this coronavirus and will think they just have a cold um, and exhibit mild symptoms and go about their day until they're well. This has originated in a city of 11 million people, after all. It's big. It's crowded. And it's not by accident that it's spreading now. It's the Lunar New Year, and people travel and are on the move. And who could blame them? Most people in that city are probably trying to figure out what is even going on. Seriously, no matter how alarmist of an infection scale you want to accept, any increase only hurts the argument that this is an issue of high mortality and of any concern. Now look, I'm, I'm not going to be so pedantic as to calculate the percentage of deaths against actual population rather than infection. Uh, suffice to say that the decimal place has a lot of zeros after it before getting to the percentage amount. 170 out of 11 million people. Obviously, there is still a level of respect and concern that we need to give this situation. We are talking about real human lives, which has been lost or are being heavily impacted by this outbreak. Statistical significance isn't part of the discussion to the families who've lost loved ones, and it shouldn't be. It certainly requires a level of measured consideration from the rest of us and the global community at large to remember this. I mean, look, China has completely locked down travel for at least 18 million people and probably more by now, which may be overkill. But people are scared and expect their government to be proactive. I don't want to sit here and dismissively armchair quarterback all the decisions. Screenings at airports do make sense. Added care at hospitals, clinics, and schools absolutely seems reasonable. In fact, most people have a pretty practical attitude toward this. And I spoke to some of my family members just to keep my overly cynical perspective on the whole thing in check. They certainly were paying attention to the news and thinking about what precautions might be needed or potential risks that could materialize. I mean, we did have a suspected case here in Texas, after all, and that was before that the testing results came back negative. Still, for all the practical perspective, there are those out there demanding, and I quote, draconian travel curbs out of China, and claiming, as the Daily Star reported in the intro, that death tolls are on track to match that of the infamous Spanish flu. Even though a metered response was initially held by the global community, 
the WHO has decided to chime in. As of January 30th, the World Health Organization has declared this outbreak to be a world health emergency. I had to revise this portion of the show outline at the last minute because as I'm recording, this is hot off the presses. I'm going to quote the statement from the WHO website as a public service, though I'll admit I'm hesitant to add to the alarmism. Here's what they have to say. It is expected that further international exportation of cases may appear in any country. Thus, all countries should be prepared for containment, including active surveillance, early detection, isolation, and case management, contact tracing, and prevention of onward spread of 2019 NCOV infection, and to share full data with WHO. Technical advice is available on the WHO website. Countries are reminded that they are legally required to share information with WHO under the IHR. Any detection of 2019 NCOV in an animal, including information about the species, diagnostic tests, and relevant epidemiological information, should be reported to the World Health Organization and the World Organization for Animal Health as an emerging disease. Countries should place particular emphasis on reducing human infection, prevention of secondary transmission, and international spread, and contributing to the international response, though multi-sectoral communication and collaboration and active participation in increasing knowledge on the virus and the disease, as well as advancing research. The committee does not recommend any travel or trade restrictions based on the current information available. Countries must inform WHO about any travel measures taken, as required by the IHR. Countries are cautioned against action that promotes stigma or discrimination in line with the principles of Article 3 of the IHR. Okay, just in case you thought that the headlines were starting to subside, this new declaration makes certain that you know the paranoia must remain in full force. Remember that all deaths associated with this coronavirus have occurred in China at this point. But, I guess, still, anyone, anywhere, with any flu-like symptoms should be met with suspicion and quarantine. Oh, and no, there is no vaccine. Shockingly, sarcasm added, no vaccine has been made for the month-old virus that suddenly appeared. <sighs> it, it's ridiculous. Okay, so let's leave the background and updates, take a quick breather, and then get back to some theriology. Maybe we can figure out why this fascinates us. So, if it's not really bad, then why the hype? First and foremost, the media hype is because tragedy and alarmism sells. People buy newspapers with sensational headlines. They tune into news channels because death is on the screen. 
the media frenzy is actually self-explanatory and not that conspiratorial. So let's tackle that first. The Daily Star article mentioned earlier is actually sourced from a Yahoo News UK article with a, as a Newswire release. In it, as mentioned, the author quotes a Professor Neil Ferguson from the Imperial College of London and describes to the professor the statement that this death rate could be similar to the Spanish flu. Now, fortunately, and this was refreshing to see, real journalism isn't entirely dead. And a fact-checking effort was made through Project Verify and reported on the website for a news affiliate in Iowa. The news report reached out to Professor Ferguson to explain his quote and determine if it was really the apocalyptic prophecy as portrayed. And that was a lot of peas in a row, and hopefully this isn't popping in your ears. It wasn't, as you might have already guessed. No, in reality... His statement was in response to a question in which he was asked how severe a 1-2% to death rate actually is. As a comparison, Ferguson explains, he pointed out that in the U.S. and U.K., the Spanish flu's mortality rate was estimated to be about 2%. He was making a very specific comparison to a very specific geographic region impacted by the Spanish flu not to the total global impact. In the UK, the estimated mortality rate of the Spanish flu is, was 230,000 people. And yes, still cause for alarm if used as a projection for the coronavirus impact, but certainly not the same as quoting the 50 million dead number. And remember, he's referencing the Spanish flu because most people are very familiar with it right now. This article goes on to flesh out in greater detail the context of his statements and does a good job of tempering not only the alarmism of the coronavirus news, but the historical perspective of the Spanish flu as well. It's linked in the show notes, and I encourage you to take a look. Now, the real surprising thing, apart from the media hype, is that the actual medical professionals and political figures being approached by the media aren't doing much to quell the paranoia, it seems. Why is that? Huh? I'll tell you. It's because they want you to have the pandemic in your mind. They, and they in this case, meaning the pharmaceutical companies, medical professionals, retailers, distributors, and politicians and lobbyists that are in some way vested in the vaccine industry have to protect the estimated $60 billion business. And that is $660 billion business of the vaccine development and distribution market. Everyone has been quick to realize that coronaviruses do not have vaccines. And this outbreak will play out its course without one. But that hasn't stopped multiple groups jump on the vaccine development route for this specific strain, pushing for immediate emergency funding. Also, you can be assured that about a year from now, the story will resurface as simply the Wuhan pandemic. It'll just be referred to as a sickness with flu-like symptoms that was so tragic because there was no vaccine treatment. It's not mind control or poisoning or public experimentation. It's money. Lots of money. Just a few years ago, 
the 2016 vaccine market was only worth still an almost uh, $24 billion U.S. Now, in context, that's quite a growth. I, I'm going to pull some information from an article by a writer named Timothy Alexander Guzman on globalresearch.ca to give you a picture of the industry. The author pulls in several other sources, so it makes for a nice aggregate of discussion. That year, a report was published on marketwatch.com, that year being 2016, that projected the market growth through 2020. From that report, quote, the report study indicates that the introduction of new products is fueling the growth of the market. Moreover, the significant expansion of the current product offerings is also expected to boost the market growth. Due to the increasing prevalence rates of various infectious diseases such as diphtheria, influenza, hepatitis, pneumococcal diseases, and meningococcal diseases, there has been a notable increase in the use of vaccines across the globe." End quote. Look, regardless of what side of the line you fall on the vaccine debate, and I am specifically not making this a discussion of the vaccine controversy this time, there are some pretty nasty infectious diseases out there that no one wants to contract. There are also some that just aren't that bad, but I guess if you can avoid them, some would choose to do so. No matter the infection, it's a big investment to research develop, test, and manufacture a vaccine. To make that worthwhile, these pharma companies have figured out how to market the demand to justify the supply and generate revenue. Now, before we leave that article, there is another quote from the MarketWatch source, which you may find as interesting as I did. Quote, The Americas will continue to dominate the human vaccine market during the forecast period because of the increase in the prevalence of infectious diseases and cancers. In addition, increase in strategic alliances with expected entry of novel vaccines is also expected to propel the growth of the market in this region. End quote. Huh. Seems rather curious that they factor in the entry of quote-unquote novel vaccines as a given. If you wonder why people suspect that some of these epidemics seem manufactured and intentional, well, there you go, fuel for the fire. If you promise shareholders that you're going to develop new vaccines for new infections, I guess you need new infections. Okay, so just like the Informative Verify article discussed earlier, this global research article is worth a read. Now, we know why the flu shots are a big deal now for the pharmaceutical industry that requires A-listed, no expense spared, don't ask any questions of them level marketing. But why do we buy into it? Why is the world so darn afraid of the flu symptoms and the possibility of pandemic? Is it just because of the media hype? For the sake of selling headlines? Does that work us all up into a frothy lather of fear and worry? Is it somehow that the spread of an illness is more intrinsically frightening than the more probable threats of car accidents and heart disease? 
Why are we so certain and so compelled to fall prey to the panic over pandemics? Well, the answer is this, in my humble opinion. We all believe that a viral pandemic can happen. We are talking a Black Plague level, nearly existential threat scale of event. We believe this because we have been told that it already did a century ago. It all started in 1918 when a serious round of the sniffles hit the globe at the tail end of World War I that has almost reverently become known as the Spanish Flu. And this is where we will leave the topic for this episode. In part two, we will leave the coronavirus behind and get into understanding this 100-year-old mystery. I know it, it seems like an odd split because to really understand the basis for pandemic paranoia, you absolutely have to talk about the Spanish influenza outbreak of 1918. And it would make sense to keep it all together in a single episode. But this current outbreak makes it an unfolding event, and splitting this topic will allow for the events to play out a bit more and reveal a more accurate understanding of outcomes. I'll have the opportunity to update status, affirm suspicions, and, I know, perhaps even eat my words if severity takes a turn for the worst. I mean, as it is, I wanted to keep this from getting dated, and I wanted to get this out for you to think about. Besides, the Spanish flu, as a source of fascination and intrigue, it can stand alone as a discussion. Not only will it help us to understand the public fascination with pandemic threats, but it's a lesson on how easy it is to forget context and completely misunderstand how complex such events as this really are. So with that, I will see you next time as we explore the forgotten pandemic. So what do you think about pandemic threat response and this explanation for our social fascination? Have you been affected by this outbreak? Well, let me know. Email me contact at conspiracytheoryology.com or find me on the socials at TheoryologyPod. Uh, you can join the, the Facebook discussion group uh, or find me on Twitter. Okay, that'll do it. All the info, as usual, can be found at conspiracytheoryology.com, including how to support the show on Patreon and links to the merchandise store for t-shirts and other goodies. Music is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, Theoryologists, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.